Welcome to Book Rising, a podcast by the Radical Books Collective. Hello everyone, my name is Bhakti Shringarpure and I'm your host for our podcast, The Book Rising, and I'm very excited to welcome Maza Mengiste in the studio today. Maza is an award-winning and multi-talented Ethiopian-American novelist, essayist, and editor. She has published two novels, Beneath the Lion's Gaze and The Shadow King. She's also the editor of a story collection, Addis Ababa Noir. Beneath the Lion's Gaze, published in 2010, was selected by The Guardian as one of the 10 best contemporary African books and named one of the best books of 2010 by the Boston Globe, the Christian Science Monitor, and other publications. Maza's more recent novel, The Shadow King, was shortlisted for the 2020 Booker Prize and was a finalist for the LA Times Book Prize in Fiction. In addition, she has been a recipient of the American Academy of Arts and Letters Award and prestigious fellowships from the Fulbright and the National Endowment for the Arts, among others. Maza's essays have been published in The New Yorker, The New York Review of Books, Granta, The Guardian, and The New York Times. We are also proud to add that Maza Mengiste has served on the advisory board of Warscapes for several years and has been a generous supporter of our literary and cultural projects. Hi, Maza. Welcome to the Radical Books Collective podcast called Book Rising, which rhymes with Uprising, and I'm so excited to have you in the studio to talk about your work, to talk about the madness that's going on in terms of the amazing wins for so many African writers Mm -hmm. across the board. Um, And to generally just talk about publishing and, you know, just the world at large, how it's shifting, how it's changing. So let me start with my first question. So, you know, it's very hard not to talk about prizes at this point. Mm-hmm. As you know, tons and tons of writers uh, from the African continent or of African heritage uh, have swept uh, the literary prizes in the last year or the last few months. Uh, it's a long list, okay? Of course, uh, the, the big names here are Abdul Raza Gurna, who won the Nobel Prize, and then Babakar Buris Diop, uh, who won the Neustadt Prize. And then there's several in between. There's also Damon Galgut, who won the Booker Prize. So, you know, let's just start there. What's going on? I don't think it's a coincidence. What's what's happening? Well, uh, first, Bhakti, it's just it's great to talk to you. I I can't remember the first time that uh, you and I met, um, but I feel like I've I've watched your journey through Warscapes and now the Radical Books Collective and this podcast, and it's been amazing. Um, thank and you. thank you for inviting me to be here. I uh, I have been watching with such uh, glee, I mean, pure joy uh, at the number of African writers that have uh, become noticed uh, by a wider audience. Um, you know, you mentioned Abdul Razak Gurna, there's, uh, I think, David Diop, Nadifa, 
Mohammed was just uh, a finalist for the Booker Prize. Um, and when I have, you know, when I think about what is happening, I think one of the first things um, that I have to remind myself is that we have been here writing for decades, for uh, for a very very long time. Um, so it's not as if it's that it's not like we've burst onto the scene, you know, with debut novels. Um, Gorna has published what, like at least four. 10 books, yeah, 10 books, and I think several essay collections. Um, Nadifa has written several books. Uh, people have been have been writing. Uh, the world is slowly starting to broaden its thinking about the capabilities of literature and what exists uh, within the the realm of African literature. So I, I think the world is catching up to what uh, we have always known is that the work is diverse, it is exciting, it is universal, it's global, but it's also distinctly. There's also something that is uniquely African about it uh, in terms of each of these writers working um, and from a, a very specific community um, a specific family, uh, some ha household. So uh, I, I hope that uh, the literary world has moved out of literary tourism of these African books and really um, that it's become a more sophisticated reading because the writers have been doing things that are far sophisticated um, and audiences uh, were not ready at that time, but maybe now they are. I love that term literary tourism. I have not heard <laughs> that before. I wonder, I wonder how come. Um, but I think I think you're, you know, of course, you're right. It's been going on for so long, especially for uh, people like me who are academics and who've been assigning these books for so many years. Um, it's, you know, it's not a surprise um, when these names kind of are winning bigger prizes. Um, but of course, I think you know, what you're calling the world or what I would call publishing circuits are changing. So your first book was published in 2010, Beneath the Lion's Gaze. And then, uh, you know, you were doing all this incredible archival research. Uh, and then uh, 10 years later, uh, you were ready to publish The Shadow King and that's when it came out. Um, and I think things have shifted within these 10 years, you know. Uh, for you, of course, you were probably not just a debut writer, you had made such a name for yourself. Um, so, you know, publishing Shadow King probably had uh, lesser challenges than maybe the first book. Um, but what, what could you say a little bit about what you found had changed with regards to diversity uh, in terms of signing writers from the African continent? Uh, I know that for a long time, it was very trendy, like Indian writers who wrote in English. I mean, I think for like almost a decade or something, they were like the most <laughs> dominant entity with prizes and publishing deals, like amazing mm -hmm. publishing deals. So, you know, in terms of diversity, in terms of signing black writers, women writers, uh, more translations, um, you know, do you find something has altered? Uh, I do. When I think back to um, 
my first book, I remember that one of the first questions I would always get is what is an African writer? Or are you an African writer? Um, that seemed, that was the question uh, for everyone that it felt like that was the discussion in 2010. What, what is African literature? What makes, you know, and now I, I remember also some friends of mine, um, Indian writers saying, oh, you know, we got this too when we first published, just give it some time and people will eventually get tired of that question. Um, but now 10 years later, I think that we've moved, we're moving beyond it. I don't, I don't get asked that. I don't get asked where's home. Um, I get, uh, I think the, the readership has uh, begun to understand the diversity across the continent. Um, we have writers now from, the, from Africa, whether you know, they're diasporic or, or they live there who are um, diverse, they're transgender, they are queer, they are, you know, there's, there's just a, a, a range of voices that have come out. Um, the ranges in stories too um, have increased. And I also think that we are getting African writers who are the critics, who are members of juries, who, who, who are slowly moving into those positions. And I think that makes a difference in uh, the voices that also get noticed um, because they, they are um, calling attention to other writers. And I, I am grateful for that. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. That's, uh, that's actually a very crucial mm -hmm. point uh, when we think about who is kind of entering some of the more powerful positions and so on. Um, you know, let's think a little bit about this question you used to be asked, where is home? <laughs> um, you know, and, you know, I know that you happen to be a very much an Ethiopian writer with a deep and constant engagement uh, with Ethiopia and the continent as a whole. You've spent so much time there. You're always going back, you have family. Uh, but you also have a base in the U.S. Uh, and, you know, whether, whichever way one sees it, um, it's very hard to publish African literature outside of the bounds of a kind of Western publishing structure, yeah. you know, um, just, just, that's just the way it has been, you know. So I wonder then, um, has the subject matter of your books, you know, your books are dense, they are about war, they are stylistically innovative. Um, have they been a challenge for Western publishing? Um, or has it been has it been easy? Mm. <clears throat> really good question, Boxy. Uh, I think that my books have been challenging. And I think it's been challenging in many ways. Um, I, you know, first when I was writing The Shadow King and I knew that I was doing something stylistically that was different for me, at least, um, and, I, and I felt would probably be different for the, for readers, um, I, I assumed that people would either love it or hate it and there would be no middle ground, which I think is basically what happens, what has happened with it. Um, let me stop you. There are people who hate the Shadow King. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, I, <laughs> I did not know you. Oh the, the reviews have been so. Oh no! Oh my God, Bhakti! Um, scathing reviews from the from the UK, especially the UK. And I will tell you that an Indian writer contacted me when the book became a finalist, and she said, "I want you to prepare yourself for these." journalists because they are vicious and they were there were a few of them there was there was one headline that said Maza Mengiste is no Andrew McCabe I don't know who that is who I don't even didn't know who it is I had to look it up and I was like how am I being it was like there have been some really you know wow they've called it a disaster yeah, I think I'm um, like a, I'm like a sociologist or something where I just check how many reviews and maybe I don't actually read <laughs> all of them because yeah, it's so important. Reviews are so important for books. Yeah, especially during the Booker, I was absolutely convinced that they were they were just sending this signal that this this you know not all of them not of course there were just a few, but there it it makes me think I I was. I was prepared for that kind of reaction when the book came out. I was actually surprised that I didn't get as much of it. Um, I wanted to do something new and I was prepared for some of it, but um, it has also made me question the, the kinds of books that readers will accept from white male writers the kinds of innovations and risks that they um, that they will accept from a white writer, and the kinds of innovations and risks that they will not absolutely not accept from, let's say, a writer from Africa. Uh, there's a level of trust that goes into the act of reading, and there's also a sense that if I am confused by something in a book. There are two different reactions. The reader can say, well, I trust that this writer knows more and I'm just going to follow it until I get comfortable. Or there's going to be a sense of, my God, this is so confusing. How dare they? And then that's it. And I think that uh, audiences are more comfortable in giving leeway to white writers, to white male writers. Uh, they're more comfortable in moving into their confusion because they they assume that that white writer knows more and knows something that they don't so they're there to to go along with it and I I, I don't think that we get that same leeway um, I think riskier books when they come from uh, African writers will get disparaged more because readers don't want to give them that trust and they might get offended that a writer actually an African writer knows something something that they don't know uh, so they'll speak of confusion as if it's a bad thing um, and I that is a, a one thing that I think we still need to uh, that's the that's those are discussions I think we still need to have um, how much trust a reader is willing to give uh, these, I mean, even these radical books that that you're presenting uh, requires a level of trust from readers. 
Um, and there are readers who will gravitate towards that because they like the challenge. And there are others who don't want to be challenged by a writer of color. Absolutely. That is so well said. <clears throat> um, one of the things, uh, you know, that happened with uh, Gurna's win was mm -hmm. the idea somehow that uh, the UK has been, has had a better kind of publishing ecosystem when it came to African literature uh, versus the, the US. Do you think this might be true? Oh, that is a really good question. I think that uh, in, in one way, in terms of um, African literature, I mean, the British, the UK has had more interactions with that population. Americans have the African-American literary world. Um, but when I think about Gurna, in particular, um, his his books, even his latest book, Af Afterlives, you you are not going to be able to find it in the U.S. until August of next year, uh, August twenty twenty two. Um, everyone was scrambling when he won the Nobel to to get his books here. Um, you know, of course, they ran out in the U.K., but they they're not published here, yeah. and that I. That's, I think, a, a symptom of, of this larger problem. Um, bigger names get published in the US because the publishing industry has moved from being an arts um, community mm -hmm. to being a corporation. I mean, we've heard this for so long, but uh, it's shifted to every what can make money, what can sell and uh, Publishers and editors are less willing to take risks because this is—it's all about that—that that money. Um, and we see with Gorna what gets, what can get lost. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's also issues of translation that that we can talk about. Um, the lack of translators in certain languages. I mean, like Amharic, or um, I'm working with a young young translator right now just in some ways trying to mentor him or trying to get him connections he translates to Grinya um, and he's currently translating Paradise Lost from English into Tigrinya and wow. I want to get him and the stories that he's telling uh, can you know try to get him with with editors uh, I these are the kinds of things I think we we have to do on an individual level because um, the publishing world is not necessarily supporting that kind of work. Mm -hmm. In academia, you know, uh, many of us find people who work on, say, African literary criticism, African literary studies, um, is always pitted in, in this very finite space of diversity. Uh, with African-American studies. And that's, that's actually the bigger problem because the space can accommodate everybody. Yet, uh, you know, whether it's corporate imperatives or just a kind of limited imagination, um, I think, you know, one does one or the other for some mm -hmm. reason, you know. Um, and I think in the US publishing, there isn't a sense that you're going to miss out if you, if you hadn't published a Gurna, we'll publish him now, big deal, 
right? So um, you know, there, it's just a, it's a very it's a very different way of thinking. Uh, you know, a, another kind of uh, way in which we get African literature is from the continent. And I think this trajectory is still very rare. Of course, the most successful within that is uh, Jennifer Makumbi from Uganda, who had been publishing these kind of giant uh, epic novels forever and ever, and then finally won the Kwani uh, Manuscript Prize. And then uh, the African uh, community, digital community, literary community, boosted her work so much that it then came here. You know, um, do you feel this is a trajectory um, we can see more of, or do you feel like African publishing um, uh, systems on the continent um, still require a lot of work? Like, what do you think about? Uh, you know, your question makes me think about the, uh, this woman that both you and I met uh, when we were in Somaliland, Hilda. Uh, yeah, she oh works my... for FemRight. Yes. Also and, in London. Yeah, and she recently, um, not long ago, actually several months ago, sent me uh, an anthology of South Sudanese female writers. Um, something that FemRight was publishing. And uh, I read the stories and, um, you know, these were women expressing themselves, expressing uh, their experiences, whether it was through poetry or photography or um, short stories or nonfiction. And there was a range of, of skills and I think a range of, um, of talents, but each of those stories felt significant uh, because they were they were being these 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 women were being recognized. Their their memories were 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 noted, um, and they're being read. And, and I think about that book, and I think about the publishing that FemRight does as part of this African ecosystem that is within the continent, but. I'm hoping slowly starts moving out, a bit like Jennifer Makumbi's story of someone who, who's doing fantastic work um, and Africans know it, her community knows it. And then finally the rest of the world wakes up and, and she's given a wider audience. Um, there are systems within, uh, within the continent that are working. And I think they're working for the people that, um, that need them. But I think that there's more, uh, there's obviously more uh, collaborations that could happen. There, uh, there's more coordination that should happen. I think there's more training that needs to happen. Um, I know that Seagull Books does uh, training for editors and publishers in Calcutta every year. And what they do is um, will select a certain number of editor, people who want to do this, and then offer training free of charge. And uh, I was talking to Naveen not long ago about getting some Ethiopians there for that kind of training, because people are interested, it's just they don't know how to do it. And what Naveen's example 
says also is that we don't have to rely on the West, that there are collaborations that can happen between India and different, different parts of Africa. Um, and there's a way that we can coordinate and not consider you know, uh, what, what someone in the US or the UK might think or might disagree with, et cetera. So I, I think that we have to be doing those things more. Um, and specifically, I, I go back again to translation because that is going to be um, important the more writers start, uh, start working across the continent. Yeah, translation is really the holy grail of mm -hmm. that can yeah. that can change almost um, everything. And I love that you mentioned Naveen Kishore of Seagull Books, who's a supporter and one of the early people who has been guiding me through Radical Books Collective. So uh, it's good to have him in there. And I love that program. Yes. Uh, uh, the other thing that you know your response makes it, makes me think of is that like that is the most East African response <laughs> that you've given me, because I know if, uh, if, it, if you were West African, we would hear a lot about like the Nigerian uh, Kasava Republic and um, you know, all the people there who've been doing an immense amount of work. But of course, you know, the continent is 50 plus countries. So we need everywhere to yes. be invigorated, right? Mm -hmm. um, so let me, let me get to, let me get to that that East African, uh, East African stuff. So you edited uh, Addis Ababa Noir uh, and it's a wonderful, brilliant anthology. And I, re I reviewed it. And at the time I was talking to you and I remember you saying that you wanted to make it as inclusive and diverse uh, a process. And I think it's, uh, you know, Ethiopian literature is an extremely complicated, um, uh, complicated and, uh, you know, in the sense that you know, there's so many different language literatures. It's also got such an old history, you know. So, talking within a kind of contemporary Ethiopian literature moment, bringing this stuff into the English language, um, uh, you know, I think it's one of the one of the few ones recently that have reconstructed for me what is an Ethiopian literature. So. Uh, or at least made us think about it. You know, I'm not going to say, oh yeah, it is the only um, only kind of thing that brings together Ethiopian literature, but it's one that makes a big contribution. Uh, so just, you know, how was the process? How did it all come together? Uh, the process was, um, it was slow in, in some ways um, because of, uh, the search for the writers and the writers existed. It was just a matter of how to how to reach them, how to find them. Um, I needed to get fourteen writers, um, and I, and it was um, the challenge was in uh, finding sometimes finding ways to contact them, um, but also the, a diverse. I wanted to to get as. Uh, the voices that were as diverse as possible, diverse in terms of linguistic, um, the, the language. Um, I wanted to think about different uh, experiences, different kinds of writing, gender, all of those things. Um, and I was thinking of, uh, you know, the diasporic writers, but also people actually based still in Ethiopia. Uh, 
I was willing to work with uh, people writing in their language of choice uh, and then, you know, scrambling to find translators uh, if I had to. Um, and the way that this project started to come together was, was really exciting because, you know, one writer would lead me to another, would lead me to another, would lead me to another. And so I realized that um, even if the West and even if I didn't know all of these writers initially, they knew each other. They had their own ecosystem. They had their own communities and support systems, and they'd been working together for um, some for decades. Uh, I wanted to think about uh, stories that might um, might express different aspects of what it means to be Ethiopian. Uh, from a diasporic sense, but also from uh, a sense of someone who was living the, living in in the country, um, and so slowly it came together that way. And I was I was pleased with the way that it turned out. I really am thankful to the writers because um, there was a lot of editing. I I read these stories numerous times and gave them feedback, and they were willing willing to take it and and you know, do these these edits um, and then keep, be patient with me as I was working on other projects and working on my novel. So it, it took a while, but I, I, I love the process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that anthology. It's also uh, truly noir uh, because we kind of see um, an Ethiopian history punctuated by wars and regimes and uh, things like that. Uh, but that's not all it is. Um, so, you know, um, I think it adds a very unique, I think it adds a very unique, um, unique perspective on the region uh, because I think at the same time, Nairobi Noir had come out and I had looked at both anthologies together and, um, you know, their definition of Noir was just extremely different you know, uh, or what, what they were seeing, what Peter Kimani was seeing as what constitutes a Kenyan literature um, was very different. What did, did you arrive at a notion, even if it was or was not included in Addis Ababa Noir, did you arrive mm -hmm. at some <clears throat> way of saying, okay, this is what Ethiopian literature is, or this is, this is how I'm going to, mm. you know, engage with it? I remember uh, Adam, Adam Retta, one of the writers, I was in conversation with him um, not long after the, the book was published. And he said to me that, uh, you know, he left Ethiopia during the time of the Derg, the revolution that, that began in the 1970s. Um, and he said, you leave the country, but you never really leave. You know, you never, you never leave whatever. And, and that moment, he said for him is a place that that moment in Ethiopian history, he keeps coming back to again and again. And I saw that reflected in a lot of these stories, whether the, the writer was diasporic or whether they were based in Ethiopia, um, so many of these tended to revolve around, uh, let's say the revolution, the aftermath uh, of that, the consequences of this, and that was a definition of noir that felt very Ethiopian. 
that noir was the memory, memory of war, memory of revolution, memory of conflict and the traumas of it. Um, and that was surprising to me to see how many of these stories came up like that. Uh, and the, the, the noir of it was less about crime and more about intimate or personal terrors or horrors that, that might creep in um, from the outside. And I, that, was, that was really interesting to me to take, to take the book as a whole and look through all of those stories and see what, what emerged. Yeah, I found that fascinating. Yeah, that's great. Uh, you know, it makes me think that um, uh, I'm drawn to kind of literature from that region, but that's because, you know, a lot of my uh, scholarly writing and so on is to do with, to do with war and conflict and displacement. And uh, sadly, a lot of East African literary and cultural production uh, you know, fits that mode. And primarily I tend to work on Sudan and also Somalia. Uh, and then now when you say this, it makes me think that both your novels are about war as well. I was just, I, we, your Radical Books Collective uh, did a, uh, an event on food and food politics and all the culinary heritage uh, that we foregrounded was um, through war and displacement. Mm. So, you know, these are sort of, troubled circuits of literary, cultural, artistic uh, production, um, and way more than Southern Africa or West Africa, East Africa tends to be implicated uh, or, you know, is, is, is somehow producing these war stories or these conflict histories. Um, would you agree? What do you think? Yeah, I, I think um, these, you know, the way that war and conflict is expressed, I, I think in, in many instances tends to be generational. The kinds of ways, the ways that a generation can talk about this conflict. So if I think about the revolution uh, of the 70s in Ethiopia, there is a population that directly experienced that, that still has a hard time talking about what happened. And then there, are the, then there are the children of that revolution, those people born afterwards who are curious about it, who are asking their parents, who are doing the research to try to find out what's happening. They are the people who are writing this. But I think we have another generation that's coming now that is even another step removed from, from that conflict and looking at, um, other expressions of it, maybe not dealing directly with this, but talking about trauma in, in a different way that still farther away from the conflict, but still looking at some of the consequences of it, if that makes any sense. Um, like the food thing, you know, for still, still communicating with that history, but seeing the many ways that that history has continued to impact different parts of the culture. Uh, and I think that's the case in Ethiopia. I'm, I'm thinking now of uh, this book called The Parking Lot Attendant, uh, written by a young Ethiopian writer, Nafkote Tamrat. And uh, it came out, I think, a year or two years ago. 
and um, uh, it was uh, it it was a, it's a surreal story uh, of a father and daughter. Um, and this is for me an example of, of the way that a writer can take this moment and do something wholly new, almost speculative, uh, a fantastical kind of story. Um, and it this is this is what's going what's happening. This is the way that things evolve in the literary world. And I find that exciting. Um, maybe I, I don't I you know, Dina Mangistu's more recent books, I think, move further away from that the conflict. Uh, but I think there are other writers, um, spe specifically people based in Ethiopia. I'm thinking of now um, two writers, Linda Johannes and uh, Gurma Fantaye. And they're writing things that are just on their own that have nothing necessarily to do with history, but are speculative or really just dealing with social interactions and they're making social commentaries satirical there's you know or they're funny um and i find that i love that those are those are there's some writers there that really need a wider audience here mm -hmm. wow and the parking lot attendant i love that title that sounds interesting yes yeah check it out yeah i will um the you know let, let me ask like a finalish question on uh, my thing that I'm hung up on, which is what is East African literature, right? Uh, with Gurna's win, with you and Nadifa Mohammed being Booker Prize nominees, uh, we're getting a decentering of uh, what is typically African literature, which is Nigerian and South African literature. I mean, I say <laughs> we're getting a decentering, but Damon Galgut has won. So, you know, it's still there, of course. Um, yeah. And I had a very uh, fun uh, podcast with uh, Sudanese Scottish writer Leila Abu Leila, mm -hmm. uh, who, who had an interesting um, take on what makes East African literature different from West African. And she felt like East African connects with a further East, you know, because of its oceanic uh, histories mm -hmm. and so on, whereas um, West African is a kind of... Uh, uh, different imagination. It's more, uh, you know, it's more internal uh, to their kind of systems and circuits and spaces. So, you know, I just wondered, what is East African literature to you? What are its themes, its styles? Is there something we can say about this? Oh, oh my goodness. Um, well, I, I do agree with Leila that it's, it's uh, you know, that part of the continent is stretching to the East a bit more. Um, when I, and I think that the writers are, there's a mix of cultures, there's a mix of languages, uh, there's a mix of, of um, yeah, it, it, I don't, what is East Africa? When Abdul Raza, when I think of Nadifa Muhammad, yeah. uh, when I think of, you know, Jennifer Makumbi, you know, Yvonne of War has an interesting uh, comment yeah. on that, which is uh, she kind of divides them into like uh, the forest imagination and the ocean ocean imagination. Uh, that's it. And yeah, I'm not sure it's like entirely like that, but like it's 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 a fun rubric to to have when you think yeah. formally. I think there is something there about like it's between the ocean and the and the forest. 
and there there's a there's something even the something is happening with language even with the english language that that i like that rubric um that feels different feels distinct and maybe it is the way that uh the presence of english on on the eastern part of the continent um maybe i don't you know kenya and is has all you know has been speaking english for a long time but then you have countries like ethiopia that are starting to uh, writers are starting to write more in English and what you get is a different kind of vocabulary because of the influence of Amharic or Tigrinya or Afanoromo uh, or another indigenous language in Ethiopia and that's making an impact. It still has to be felt I think by, the, by an audience but when I am reading those writers I notice that there's a rhythm there that's very different and I like that oceanic reference because I think that um, mm -hmm. it speaks to that to yeah. that difference I notice yeah it's a, it's a it's a lovely way to think about uh, yeah think about it um, and uh, you know you've been so generous you've given us so many lovely writers to read and you know you've talked so openly about uh, you know your experiences uh, these mean reviews uh, which I'm going to go look up. <laughs> Thanks, I, Marty. <laughs> I wanted a final. I wanted to finally ask you about you. I mean, I, is there something you're working on? What should we look forward to? Is there a Shadow King movie coming up? Is there a new novel? Well, uh, I am. I am working. I'm now in this very beginning stages of another book where I'm flailing in the dark trying to find the story. Um, but I, I do think it's, it's, it is another one set in war, uh, but it's historical. Um, and uh, I don't know why I'm going back in time, uh, but I think it's still dealing with world, it's still dealing with World War II. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Joe Sacco, the Maltese yeah. American uh, cartoonist or graphic novelist, uh, he has this line in, uh, in his graphic novel, uh, Palestine, where there's all these photographers and writers gathered around like something that's gone wrong. And he's like, well, I admit it, peace won't pay the rent, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so when you say yet another <laughs> book on war, um, I, 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 I want to read that. It's Second World War, sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah, yeah, it is. And uh, I am not, I am not sure how involved Ethiopia will be this time. So uh, that's going to be interesting. That's all I will say uh, that I think I might be moving countries. Um, wow. But I, it has, I have been thinking about this and, and uh, planning on it for a number of years, even way before uh, the Shadow King was published. So, uh, but right now I'm just, it's, a, it's, I'm at the point where I'm, I'm at the early stages of writing. So if there are writers who are listening to this and are working on something and feel very confused, um, they should know that that's part of the process and that all of us uh, go through that and it's okay. Like at some point, the story will show up. Wow. <laughs> That's very good. That's very good advice. Uh, thank you so much, Maza. 
Thank uh, you, Bhakti. Absolutely wonderful. This was Thanks. great. Thank you.